Welcome back, everyone, to the Homeric Epic Podcast. I hope you're ready for some more bloody epic combat, as Book 5 showcases the story's first Aristea, that of young, noble Diomedes. As I touched on at the end of the last episode, Aristeas are an important aspect of the Iliad, and despite following a formula, as many scenes in the Iliad do, each Aristea is different and plays off its predecessors, and provides context to its successors. Indeed, this first Aristea of Diomedes is meant to be closely read along with Achilles' Aristea in books 20-22, to 22. so we will do just that, with only a few spoilers for book 22 sprinkled in. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast, and if you're not, I'd love to hear why on my substack, so please go check it out. But as always, to start us off, a quick recap on what we heard last time. Book 4 begins with a scene on Mount Olympus. Zeus antagonizes Hera and Athena in an effort to bring about his plan, that is, the glorification of Achilles and the destruction of Troy at large. He tricks Hera into instigating the breaking of the truce between the armies, so as not to arouse suspicion of his promise to Thetis. This moves the action forward, and Athena whisks down to the battlefield. Athena singles out the Zelian captain Pandarus for committing the treachery, mostly because he's an archer, and we are treated to the fantastically described stringing of the bow scene. Homer holds us here for a couple of pages in the tension of that bowstring before winging the hungry arrow straight at Menelaus. Athena, not forgetting her champion this time, deftly redirects the arrow to a non-mortal location in Menelaus's armor. Despite being a non-mortal wound, it doesn't look like that from far away, and the Achaeans think their champion has just been treacherously killed. With such a break in the truce, the Achaeans are ready for war. Agamemnon marshals the troops, inspecting each group and giving details on the relevant characters. The order he visits each group is important, as is what's said about and to them. Some he exhorts for their eagerness, others, either deservedly or not, he shames them for their apparent unwillingness to fight. The whole inspection of the troops episode is meant to tee up the final inspection of Diomedes, who, as I have mentioned before, is about to feature prominently in the next two books. In this scene, we are plainly shown Diomedes Sophrosune, or, in English, his soundness of mind, when responding to the undeserved rebuke from Agamemnon. But with the troops arrayed in proper order, Homer marks the movement of armies with another impressive set of similes. We have the Argives and the Trojans compared in different lights, and the crash of arms is compared with the crash of winter torrents raging down the mountains. Young Antilochus, son of Nestor, makes the first kill of the story and the book concludes with the tit-for-tat killing and being killed that fills so many pages of the Iliad. We are right in the midst of battle with Athena guiding us through the carnage, and we wonder, what next? What is next is that we'll be discussing book 5 of the Iliad. As always, I do encourage you to read along with the podcast and laugh with your friends at how poor my Homeric Greek pronunciation is. But also because the Iliad is filled with so much depth, so let's unpack as much as we can. Book 5 begins with Athena granting Diomedes Menos and Tharsos, might and courage, so that he may shine among the Greeks and win great glory for himself. Diomedes engages Phegeus and Idaeus, drilling one while the other flees and is saved by Hephaestus. Athena then bids Ares from the battlefield so that Zeus may give glory to the fighters. There are then several consecutive descriptions of Trojan soldiers being killed, each painting the backstory of the victim in rich wording. Diomedes then spies Pandarus, who wings an arrow at him, striking him in the shoulder. Diomedes prays to Athena to heal him, 
And Athena does this and grants him the ability to discern gods on the battlefield. She gives him this so that he may not engage any of the immortals, save for Aphrodite, who he is told is fair game. Diomedes returns to the battle and wreaks havoc on the Trojans, until Aeneas finds Pandarus and, inviting him onto his chariot, they both charge at Diomedes and Stenelus. Diomedes stands his ground and hurls a spear at Pandarus, striking him in the head. He then engages Aeneas, and we have the first rock thrown in the Iliad, nearly killing Aeneas. Aphrodite then descends to save her mortal son, and Diomedes pursues her and stabs her in the wrist. She drops Aeneas and flees for Olympus, but Apollo forgets not the Trojan champion and guards him from the raging Diomedes. Meanwhile, Aphrodite ascends to Olympus to be comforted by her mother Dione, who heals her wound. After some light Olympian banter, we are back on the battlefield, where Diomedes charges at Apollo. But he is reminded of his place in the cosmic hierarchy. Diomedes gives ground, and Apollo heals Aeneas and brings Ares back to the battlefield. Ares rouses the Trojans' lust for battle, and Sarpedon, a new character, criticizes Hector, not for the last time in the poem, but how the Trojan allies seem to be doing most of the heavy lifting. Sarpedon's comments always get a rise out of Hector, and he begins to rally his troops even more. Likewise, the Achaeans are rallied by Agamemnon. There is some general back-and-forth fighting until the meeting of Sarpedon and Telepolemus, where Sarpedon is the victor. With Hector and Ares against them, the Achaeans start to give ground, and Hera takes pity on them. They beseech Zeus, and he sends Athena to the battlefield to deal with Ares. Athena rouses Diomedes and directs him at Ares. Diomedes spears Ares, who flees to Olympus, only to be chastised by his father Zeus. The book closes with Zeus healing Ares, and the cosmic hierarchy is left intact. No consequences for the gods, after all. It is a long book. The longest one in the poem, in fact, and we have lots to cover. So let's dive right into the analysis, shall we? Book 5 begins with the explicit mention of Diomedes Aristea. Athena imbues her champion with fire that blazes from his head and shoulders, quote, like the star of late summer, which gleams brightest of all, end quote. This is meant to tee him up for the rest of the book, which will be a long and bloody affair. The star mentioned in this simile is Sirius, and is the brightest star visible in the northern hemisphere during summertime, and a star we can still see today. But remember what I said last episode regarding the Aristea. The gleam or blaze of a hero's armor often signifies them visually during their great work. Diomedes heads for the thickest fighting and there meets two Trojans, Phegeus and Ideos. Their father Dares, we are told, was a priest of Hephaestus, the smith god, and apparently was loved enough by Hephaestus to save one of his sons from Diomedes' wrath. This is a common occurrence throughout the poem, where a god wants to save their child, and this first small instance is meant to prime us for the more prominent saving of Aeneas by his mother Aphrodite later in this book. Zeus himself also grapples with the desire to save his son Sarpedon in book 16 of the story. It seems that, like always, the gods' favor is fickle and ever-changing. In one moment they would save their favorites, and in another they would abandon them. The Trojans are filled with panic from Diomedes slaying Aphegius, and Athena takes this opportunity to lead Ares away from the battle, under the premise that they should both avoid the wrath of Zeus. In the last episode, I mentioned how the Trojans are being led by Ares, and the Achaeans by Athena, and the symbolism that Homer likely meant to employ with this choice. Ares, god of the rout, is violent and brash, but Athena wins her battle by tactics. The tactic Athena has employed here is energizing her own champion, granting him might and courage, 
and then removing the Trojans' patron god for the time being. The removal of Ares meant that there's little to stand in the way of Diomedes during his Aristea, and what follows is several pages of Achaeans killing Trojans before we return to Diomedes. Homer makes use of Pandarus again as a vehicle to advance the action, and has him shoot an arrow at Diomedes. This time, the arrow reaches its mark, striking him in the shoulder, and Diomedes is temporarily wounded. Following this sequence of steps in the heroic Aristea, Diomedes then prays to his patron goddess Athena to heal him. Athena grants him this request, imbuing him with the strength and courage of his father Tidius, as well as, quote, I have taken from your eyes the mist that was before upon you, so that you may well distinguish God and also mortal man, end quote. What Athena has done here is allowed Diomedes to differentiate men from gods on the battlefield. Many times in the Iliad, a god appears before a hero in a disguise, and the hero may or may not recognize the god. We were told in Book 2 that Hector could recognize the god Iris disguised as a messenger, and that Helen was able to see through Aphrodite's disguise in Book 3. Several times later in the book, a god in his disguise will descend with a certain omen for certain warriors, deliver said omen, and then disappear. And the characters will not know which god it was, but they will be sure that it was a god. Other times, the possibility of the messenger being a god is ignored entirely. Seeing through the gods' disguises is meant to signify the character's piety or close relationship to the divine. Hector is noted for his piety, and Helen is a daughter of Zeus. Thus, Diomedes being given the ability by Athena marks him as special, and we shall see why he is special in just a bit. Diomedes continues to rampage, but feeling for the Trojans, Aeneas seeks out Pandarus to put a stop to him. Besides the catalogue, this is the first we hear of Aeneas in the poem. Aeneas is a Trojan prince, but more importantly, he is the son of Aphrodite. He is from a minor branch of the Trojan royal family and is actually Hector's second cousin. Throughout the majority of the poem, Aeneas is used as a punching bag by the Achaeans to show how strong they are, and he's recovered and saved by the gods on two different occasions. But let's get back to the narrative. Pandarus replies to Aeneas with a very characterizing story. He tells Aeneas that his archery has thus far been unsuccessful, and that he should change his fighting style to closer combat. But then he mentions how he doesn't have a chariot to mount, as he decided not to bring one to Troy. Everybody else has a chariot, mind you. But not because he doesn't own one. He has 11 chariots at home. But because he didn't think his horses could find enough food in Troy. We are now seeing why Athena chose Pandarus to hurl the arrow at Menelaus. He's a man with very little forethought, who cannot see the future consequences of his choices. But this is also true artistry on the part of Homer. He needs Pandarus up close and personal so he can kill him off. So he has the character rationalize to himself that he should not use his bow anymore. Scholar E.T. Owens, in his book Story of the Iliad, sums it up nicely, quote, The man, Pandarus, says what the poet wants him to say, but he says it in a way that accounts for him saying it, end quote. Like always in Homer, no line is wasted. The pair is set off against Diomedes, and Stenelus begs him to disengage. Diomedes, just starting to warm up in his Aristea, reclines, opting to face the heroes instead. After some insults are exchanged, Diomedes easily spears Pandarus right in the face. Homer has shown us what happens to those who break sacred oaths. You catch a spear to the face from Diomedes. But Homer spent a while developing this whole Pandarus Aeneas thing, the backs and forths, and then the sudden death, so... What was it all for, besides adorning Diomedes Aristea? 
Well, actually, it was to bring Diomedes and Aeneas together on the battlefield in order to further Diomedes' Aristea. Just a few lines ago, Athena grants Diomedes the ability to discern gods on the battlefield, but she says not to engage any of them except for Aphrodite. Homer seems to have set up the meeting of Pandarus and Aeneas so he could accomplish two things at the same time. One, to kill Pandarus and avenge the broken oath, and two, to bring Aeneas to Diomedes and thus pull Aphrodite into the fighting as she tries to save her son. All of this serving to heighten the Kaleos Diomedes achieves from his Aristea. With the treacherous Trojan Pandarus dispatched, Diomedes squares off against Aeneas. Having just thrown his spear, he is seemingly out of weapons. Ah, but the Homeric hero is never at a loss for weapons on the plains of Troy, so he reaches for the next best thing in his arsenal, the mighty rock. Yes, Diomedes throws literally the first stone in the Iliad, and we shall see a number more stones thrown throughout the fighting. At first it seems strange why the heroes, decked out in bronze, opt for rocks instead of spears or swords. But let's see what we can glean from Homer's words here. Quote, But the son of Tydeus took in his hand a boulder, a great feat which two men could not lift, such as mortal men are now, but he even alone brandished it with ease. With this he struck Aeneas on the hip joint. End quote. There is some interesting narration at play here. In the quote, which two men could not lift, such as mortal men are now. This concept, that people nowadays are less strong or great or heroic or whatever than the heroes of myth, pervades many parts of Greek mythology, and is part of a larger theme within world mythology in general. This concept is called the Ages of Man, and is detailed in Hesiod's Theogony, home roughly contemporary to the Iliad and the Odyssey in terms of composition. In it, Hesiod details the ages of man, those being gold, silver, bronze, heroic, and iron. I strongly encourage you to read Hesiod's Theogony, after Homer, that is. Luckily, it's not as long as the Iliad or the Odyssey, and it contains many, many of the classic myths. Anyways, much of Greek mythology takes place during the Bronze and Heroic Ages, and the general arc of the Trojan War leads to the culmination of the Heroic Age making way for the Iron Age, which was the age that the ancient Greeks saw themselves as living in. This concept of ages of man can be found in many other Eastern mythologies, but in Greek mythology, it embodies the idea that your ancestors were better than you were, and that humanity has been declining since these previous ages. It manifests in the Iliad in speeches from Nestor, talking about his youth and how much stronger he was than everyone now at their age. Also within the way, Diomedes talks about his father Tydeus. But interestingly, the poet extends this concept into the future to his audience with the phrase, such as men are nowadays. This links the present listeners of the story, that is in ancient times, firmly with the epic deeds of heroes past, and also connects them in a genealogical sense to the characters of the story. Their ancestors were the heroes of Troy, who performed the great deeds and feats of strength back when gods and mortals mingled together. But back to the story. Diomedes grievously wounds Aeneas, and Aphrodite is moved to come to her son's aid. Now remember back a few pages to when Athena was clearing the mist from Diomedes' eyes. Who was the one immortal she said he could engage in combat? 
That's right, it's Aphrodite. Homer has precisely teed up this meeting so that Diomedes can achieve something rare for his Aristea, wounding a god. As he chases Aphrodite through the throng, he stabs her straight through the hand. We then learn an interesting fact about the gods. They don't have any blood. Instead, something called ichor flows through their veins, which is one thing that sets them apart from mortals. Now I'm going to quickly summarize the next few paragraphs of Aphrodite's wounding and subsequent flight to Olympus, because I want to discuss some fascinating comparative mythology relevant to this scene. After being stabbed by Diomedes, Aphrodite is helped off the battlefield by Iris. She borrows the horses of Ares and then flees to Olympus and is comforted by her mother, Dione. Note that in the Iliad, at least, Aphrodite has a mother and is not born from the froth of Uranus' severed genitals as in other Greek myths. Dione comforts her daughter, saying that immortals often suffer at the hands of men and lists a few occasions where other Greek gods have been hurt by mere mortals. She then assures her daughter that Diomedes will not live long and heals her wound. Athena then pipes up with a sarcastic and humorous comment, saying, Aphrodite scratched her hand on a golden brooch as he was caressing some Achaean woman. Lastly, Zeus smiles and tells her that the deeds of war are not for her, but the deeds of marriage. Let Athena and Ares tend to the deeds of war. Then the narrative shifts back to Diomedes on the battlefield. Quite a little comedic episode with the gods, eh? That is certainly their purpose throughout Homer, comedic relief. But besides elevating the deeds of men by diminishing the affairs of the gods, this scene has some very interesting historical roots. While the Iliad and the Odyssey are old, there is actually an older extant epic tale from the Near East that survives to us, the so-called Epic of Gilgamesh. This ancient epic extends as far back as 2100 BC and details the deeds of the Uruk king Gilgamesh as he battles gods and monsters and whatnot. In the epic, the hero Gilgamesh and his best bro Enkidu slay the bull of heaven that was sent to kill them, because Gilgamesh denied the sexual advances of the sex-slash-war goddess Ishtar. After they kill the bull of heaven, Ishtar appears and lays a curse on Gilgamesh, to which his best bro Enkidu replies by throwing the thigh of the bull of heaven at Ishtar, wounding her. Ishtar flees to her mother Antu for comfort and is rebuked by her father Anu. Now, in historical Greece, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and there are a number of linkages between her and the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, the goddess of both war and love. Aphrodite was understood by the Greeks as having eastern origins, which archaeology can confirm, and it's thought that she is a later rendition of the goddess Ishtar, with the war aspects nearly forgotten. I say nearly because the Spartans actually worship her as Aphrodite Araya or Aphrodite the Warlike. These linkages, when viewed in light of the similar story pattern found in Gilgamesh, suggest that Iliad Book 5 is borrowing the Ishtar-wounding flight-to-her-mother scene from an older tradition in the Middle East. And further, if we assume that such a story pattern was familiar to listeners of the Iliad during its oral performance phase, then the passage takes on a very different light. Now, all of a sudden, Aphrodite mimicking Ishtar and fleeing to heaven, only to be rebuked by Zeus who states, The deeds of war are not for you, is actually a dig at the fact that Aphrodite has lost her warlike nature when she transformed from Ishtar into her Greek counterpart. Zeus is saying, Silly Aphrodite, you're no longer a war goddess, leave that to Athena. 
Such a reading jives well with the Homeric idea of the gods as a comedic foil for the heroes. But there's one more linguistic point that really seals this Aphrodite-Ishtar comparison together, though, and that is Aphrodite fleeing to her mother Dione. As I mentioned before, in most other Greek myths, Aphrodite has no mother, and is instead born from the foam of Uranus's severed genitals, so the fact that the poet deviates from this tradition is worth noting. The name Dione is the feminized version of the name Dios, which is one of Zeus's common names. You may have noticed the similarity between the names of the Mesopotamian gods I mentioned just prior, the goddess Antu and the god Anu. Their names are also the feminine and masculine forms of one another. So, just as Ishtar flees to Antu for comfort and is rebuked by Antu's husband Anu, so too does Aphrodite flee to Dione and is rebuked by Dios. Thus it seems likely that the poet chose the tradition of Aphrodite having Dione as her mother in order to parallel the traditional story pattern from Gilgamesh and to create a comedic scene about the Olympian gods. A little wink to an audience that must have been familiar with Mesopotamian mythology. Truly marvelous. It's things like this that continue to blow my mind about the Iliad. And it goes to show that its composition was a complicated and ongoing process. It also reveals the relationship between audience and performance to us slightly more, as the meta-humor of this incident implies careful crafting of the events in the story in order to deliver a highly sophisticated joke. Like always, after the scene on Olympus, we quickly return to the affairs of men. Diomedes, spotting the wounded Aeneas, rushes in for the kill and is met by the god Apollo. Apollo, patron god of Troy, protects Aeneas from the bloodthirsty Diomedes, and we have the first instance of one of my favorite type scenes here. Here it is in the Greek, quote, Tris menapeta baruse, katakta menai menaainon. Tris deoeextu filixe, faenen aspid apollon. Listen to the emphasis, the force, of the repetition in the first two lines of the word tris, three. The hard, punchy syllables of tris and tetarton, meaning the numbers three and four, echo the blows of Apollo against Diomedes' shield. The poet can do this, of course, thanks to the flexible word order of ancient Greek, where the conjunction and can come a bit later in the sentence than it can in English. Now let's hear the English translation by Caroline Alexander, and just a little further into the passage, quote, Three times he rushed forward, raging to kill, and three times Apollo smote back his bright shield. But when for the fourth time he charged like something more than human, he who works from afar, Apollo, shouting out in a voice of terror, Take care, son of Tidius, and give way. Do not seek to think yourself like the gods, since never the same is the race of immortal gods and of men who walk upon the ground. So he spoke, and the son of Tidius withdrew a little back shrinking from the wrath of Apollo who strikes from afar. End quote. This three times a hero attacks and three times is struck back is a motif and repeated by other heroes in the story very closely to this scene. 
This is because it is illustrating something very important about the relationship between mortals and gods. The Greek here, which Caroline Alexander translates into English as like something more than human, is daimoni isos. Literally, daimoni, a god, and isos, equal, like isosceles triangle. In my opinion, though, a slightly closer translation of daimoni isos would be equal to the god. It is telling that Apollo smote back Diomedes three times already, with apparent ease and no repercussions, but only once he had charged at a level on par with that of a god, that is, Daimoni Esos, did he then shout out. The act of equaling the gods is unacceptable in Homer's world and is an act of hubris. Diomedes withdrawing a little is in line with his sophrosune, that is, his soundness of mind and his understanding of the cosmic order. But Homer only has him withdraw a little bit. He allows Diomedes Aristea to remain untarnished, despite having him pulled back because it is decreed by a god directly. Diomedes Sophrosune in this scene is what marks him as special and worthy of Athena's patronage. He knows his limits and he acts within them, and by doing so, honors the gods. The restraint and self-control he shows in this scene is also meant to be viewed in stark contrast to Achilles' behavior, who in books 20-22 to lacks all restraint in battle, and who pushes the bounds of acceptable, even human behavior. But did you hear that word in the translation there? Wrath? Alarm bells should be going off in your head, dear listener. Remember back to the second episode when I discussed what the first word of the poem was. You guessed it, wrath but specifically the Greek word menis, repeated here in the accusative form menin. You may have guessed it, but this is no accident. Far from it, dear listener. The use of this word in this context is highly significant. While the word menis is translated as wrath or rage, it doesn't mean just that. There's a context to the word that we are missing out on. In his book, The Anger of Achilles, Menis in Greek Epic, Professor Leonard Milner places the word manus back into its intended context with examples of the word's usage that are found in epic and other ancient sources. He cites this scene as an example of the demonstration of manus, specifically when Diomedes attacks the unconscious Aeneas and is beaten back by Apollo. Earlier in the book, Athena restrains Ares from fighting amongst the Trojans by warning him he will incur the manus of Zeus, and here, again, Diomedes restrains himself for fear of incurring the manus of Apollo. So what exactly is going on here? Milner notes that the moment that may cause Diomedes to incur Apollo's wrath is precisely when he is said to be daimoni isos, or equal to the gods. In this scene, Diomedes has been given the ability to distinguish immortals from mortals, so that he can literally see the difference between him and Apollo, and avoid incurring his manus. Likewise, throughout the book, Manus is invoked whenever a god tries to overtake Zeus, or when a mortal tries to act like a god. A social hierarchy is emerging, one delineated and kept in place by Manus, one in which Zeus is at the very peak, followed by the gods, and then the mortals. If any one of these groups attempts to reach the next group, they will incur the Manus of their betters and suffer for it. But what about Agamemnon and Achilles? The poem explicitly states that Achilles feels manus towards Agamemnon on account of the abduction of Perseus, but there isn't a mortal-slash-immortal dynamic at play here, so what is it then? Professor Milner also asserts that manus can be incurred when one equal attempts to treat another as an inferior. 
Thus, the manus of Achilles arises from Agamemnon's forced recuperation of his prize, wherein Agamemnon has treated him as an inferior in the social hierarchy. Conversely, Agamemnon holds manus against Achilles for his refusal to acknowledge his authority at the top of their social hierarchy. Both of them can bear manus against the other because of their perceived ordering of the social hierarchy among mortals. Achilles, because he views the world as a meritocracy in warfare, with himself at the top, and Agamemnon because he views the world as an aristocracy, with his kingship and favoritism from Zeus setting him at the top of his own worldview. Thus, both kings can hold each other as objects of manus because from their perspectives, they have been treated as an inferior in the social order. Now I could keep writing about manus, but I will have to save this for a later episode because there's still so much of Book 5 to cover. After rerouting the slaughterous Aristea of Diomedes, Apollo, concern for his Trojans, rouses Ares to fight for them. Ares, in turn, takes the form of Achamas, a Thracian captain, and addresses the Trojans, declaring that they should rally around Aeneas and protect him. Sarpedon speaks for the first time in the poem, and immediately launches into one of his classic rebukes of Hector. Sarpedon as a character embodies the ideal Homeric hero, and there is no scene where he is shown being anything less than the principles he lives his life by. Because of this, he's the perfect character to talk back to Hector, who later in the poem will behave as less than the ideal Homeric warrior. Sarpedon's speech is placed here, as with everything, because it is functional. Sarpedon hails from Lycia, which is in the south of Turkey, opposite the island of Rhodes. Remember that. So he has traveled far for the sake of his allies, and he doesn't fail to take any opportunity to mention that. Sarpedon talks of his dear wife and little son, and his many possessions, which are in danger due to his absence. He also says that he has no stake in this war, his possessions are not in direct danger, unlike Hector's. Quote, All these things must be your care through both the nights and in the day, who entreat the leaders of your far-famed allies to hold the line relentlessly, and from yourself to put away any cause for strong reproach. So spoke Sarpedon, and his speech bit into the heart of Hector. End quote. That last part, and from yourself to put away any cause for strong reproach, is especially relevant for Hector, who throughout the poem will be reproached by many people, many times. Avoiding the reproach of others will be the motivating factor in his own demise in Book 22, so remember how Hector responds to potential criticisms. Besides teeing up Hector for the rest of the story, Sarpedon's speech is also meant to foreshadow the meeting of Hector and his wife Andromache and their little son Astyanax in the next book. That scene, so tender and touching, so full of life, is prepared by Sarpedon's mention of his own wife and little son. And this is an example of the fate of a main character being foreshadowed by a minor character, and is repeated by Sarpedon just a little further into this book, really hammering it home. Hector gives no reply to Sarpedon's rebuke, instead moving immediately to rallying the troops, kind of implicitly admitting that Sarpedon is correct. The action moves back quickly to war, and Aeneas rejoins the troops, who rejoice upon seeing their captain unharmed. Homer avoids a possible slip-up by clarifying, quote, When they saw him alive and unharmed as he came toward them, and possessed of his outstanding strength, but they asked no questions, for their other work did not permit them, the work of war that the god of the silver bow had raised, end quote. The soldiers couldn't ask how he was healed since they were so busy fighting, obviously, but I think that this is included here to keep the passage on track. Homer wants to get right back into the action, not have mortals held in awe at the healings of gods. There is war to wage, after all. 
And what follows is exactly that. The killing and being killed of Iliadic battle scenes. Menelaus almost mistakenly engages Aeneas, but Antilochus, wise like his father Nestor, perceives the difference in skill and steps in to save the king, we are told. Spears are thrown back and forth, and Hector continues to rage. I'll gloss over these passages because I want to get to the meeting of Telepolemus and Sarpedon. Both heroes are descendants of Zeus, Sarpedon, the direct son of Zeus, and Telepolemus, the grandson of Zeus, through Heracles. Sarpedon's kingdom of Lycia sits on the mainland opposite Telepolemus' kingdom of the island of Rhodes. Thus, it's conceivable that the two would already know of each other, and may have even been enemies before they appeared on opposite sides of the fighting. The words exchanged between the two make it very apparent that they are not friends, with Telepolemus challenging the veracity of Sarpedon's divine birth and his courage. Sarpedon, in retort, diminishes Heracles' achievement of sacking Troy a generation earlier, attributing it instead to the evil that Laomedon, that is, King Priam's father, brought upon himself by breaking his promise to Heracles. When two heroes normally square off in combat and exchange insults, they are usually polite enough to take turns casting their spears at one another. This is also the norm, because if you see someone throwing a spear at you, the worst thing you can do is throw one back. You'd be stepping out from under the protection of your shield to do so. But nope, these two do away with the formalities and hurl their spears simultaneously, perhaps illustrating the animosity held between islander and mainlander, nephew and uncle. Sarpedon's spear finds a home in Telepolemus' neck, but the loser's spear lands in Sarpedon's thigh, normally a mortal wound for Iliadic heroes, but special care is given to Sarpedon by his father Zeus. Odysseus spies the great son of Heracles falling and Sarpedon retreating and launches himself at the Lycians, prompting Hector to defend his allies. This gives Hector the chance to prove himself, opposite to Sarpedon's earlier rebuke. Sarpedon's opinion is different from before, and he now requests Hector's aid, stating, quote, Son of Priam, do not let me lie as spoil for the Danaeans, but fight for me. Then life may forsake me in your city, as it seems I was not destined to return to my home, to the beloved land of my fathers, and to make happy my dear wife and young son, End quote. The apparent ease at which Sarpedon accepts his fate is in stark contrast to Hector, whose death will not be very palatable to him. The mention of the wife and son at home reiterates the tragedy of Hector's own family, who, as I mentioned, we will meet in the next book. Sarpedon is then brought by his companions to an oak tree, the sacred tree of Zeus, his father, and he is healed there. The following passage reads, quote, The Argives, under force of Ares and bronze-armored Hector, never returned to their dark ships nor even engaged in fighting, but ever backwards kept withdrawing, for they saw Ares was with the Trojans. End quote. Such imagery works perfectly fine in English, as well as in the original Greek, but notice how Homer's anthropomorphized gods actualize the statement, Ares was with the Trojans. Ares, the war god, is with, and is also literally there with the Trojans, so much so that he is killing Achaean soldiers alongside Hector. The gods in Homer often straddle this line between metaphorical literary adornments and concrete beings capable of acting upon the world. The presence of Ares on the battlefield is a problem for the Achaeans, to say the least, and their patron goddess Hera and Athena take notice of this. They gear up, and after receiving permission from Zeus, speed down to the battlefield. Hera rallies the troops, mentioning her favorite hero Achilles, and how scared the Trojans were of him. 
And Athena rallies her champion, Diomedes, who was recently wounded by Pandarus's arrow earlier in the book. Athena repeats very closely here the rebuke that Agamemnon laid on Diomedes at the end of book 4, stating that his father Tydeus was much better than he was, yada yada, and he begat a son inferior to himself, so on and so on. But this story structure has a name. It's called a paradema, and it's very common throughout the Iliad. Characters are always eager to use examples from past mythological heroes in their speeches for persuasion. There are several highly important paradema in the Iliad, particularly in Phoenix's speech to Achilles in Book 9 about the hero Meleager, and Achilles' speech to King Priam in Book 24 about Naobi and her children. What is important about the scene between Athena and Diomedes is the clear understanding of the commands given to him by Athena. Earlier, he was explicitly told not to go after any gods except Aphrodite, and since he was given sight by Athena and can now see Ares on the battlefield, he is withdrawn. This is the reason that Athena favors Diomedes throughout the whole story. Diomedes is consistent in his Sophrosune. He doesn't pursue Aeneas past what Apollo allows, respecting the divine hierarchy. He doesn't fight with Ares because, besides being wounded, Athena forbade it. Diomedes in many ways is the ideal Homeric warrior, both in bravery and in council, and we are meant to use him as a foil for the other leading warriors. Athena is overjoyed at his response and sound judgment, and assures him that he can now engage Ares. The two hop on Diomedes' chariot and charge straight at Ares, who is engaged in stripping a corpse of its armor. There are two very fascinating details in the text here about Athena which I'd like to highlight. The first being the description of exactly when she steps onto Diomedes' chariot. The text reads, quote, And the oaken axle groaned mightily with weight, for it bore a dread goddess and a noble man. End quote. This small detail does much to separate the physicality of the gods from the men of Homer. Later in the story during the Battle of the Gods, the poet will describe Ares being struck down by Athena and covering seven acres as he falls. The gods are not only powerful, but their physical presence is also immense. The other thing is that Athena is said to put on the cap of Hades, which some of you keen Greek mythology nerds, or any of you who read the Percy Jackson series, may remember. The cap of Hades was lent to Perseus by Athena to help him slay Medusa. It seems Athena has kept her gifts here and put them to good use in helping Diomedes stab her brother. It also serves to reinforce the Iliad's connection to the larger mythological world, as many distant descendants of Perseus are currently at Troy. With Athena's assistance, Diomedes is able to spear Ares. Because Athena is invisible, she deflects Ares' spear, and with her help, Diomedes is able to spear Ares in the ribs. Ares, the god of war, mind you, flees quickly back to Olympus and complains to his father Zeus. His grievances are with Zeus's apparent lack of control over Athena who Ares says Zeus bore. This is in reference to Athena's birth myth, where she erupted from Zeus's head fully formed. Because of this, Zeus does not rebuke her for her actions, unlike the other gods, and Ares complains that she has incited Diomedes to stab him and Aphrodite. But what Ares is really saying is that his sister is not being fair, because she is the favorite child. The god of war is upset he got stabbed in a war by his sister, who was being unfair. The irony is palpable. Ares also mentions in his speech to Zeus that Diomedes charged at him daimoni isos, or equal to a god, an act that would normally trigger divine wrath, or manus. But here, 
Well, how could it? Athena sanctioned the stabbing of Ares, so the divine order is actually intact. It's just another instance of gods fighting against gods. Zeus addresses Ares, harshly replying that he is the most hateful of the gods to him, and that had he been born of another god, he would have received the same punishment as the Titans and reside in Tartaros. But despite the animosity Zeus holds for his son, he still heals him and has him sit beside him. The divine order remains intact, and Athena and Hera return from the battlefield, close off the book. Wow, 909 lines of bloody divine Aristea. Diomedes is certainly looking like quite the warrior, having wounded two gods in one book, and having a significant portion of the story thus far devoted solely to his exploits. It's reasonable to see him as the main character for this part of the story, and in a sense he certainly is. Like I have mentioned before, Homer is subtly training us in these early books on different models of behavior. He has already shown us several supplications, good ones, bad ones, and divine ones that are kind of funny. And likewise, he is showing us warriors, good ones, less good ones, and divine ones that are kind of funny. And this is the function of Diomedes when he takes the stage. We are meant to see in him the ideal Homeric warrior. He's got the skills, the sophosune, and the divine patronage, all the things you need to make it as a warrior at Troy. And you would expect that his feat of wounding two gods would put him up there with the greatest of all heroes, alongside the likes of Heracles and Perseus. Despite this, the Aristea of Diomedes does not come across this way. No one would dare put the Aristea of Diomedes anywhere near the Aristea of Achilles, and the reason for this is because Diomedes engages with the gods. To quote again from Owen's story of the Iliad, it is precisely because he must not overshadow Achilles that Diomedes is pitted against the gods, end quote. As I mentioned in episode 5, Homer is consistent in his portrayal of the gods as squabbling and petty. Their affairs cannot be taken seriously, because they can suffer no consequences. And their appearance in Homer always brings an air of humor to the otherwise bleak and bloody Trojan War. And thus is their purpose in this book. The failure of Aphrodite to save her son, running in tears to her mother Dione, while Athena jokes that she pricked her wrist on a golden brooch. Ares and Athena fighting as siblings do, and Ares complaining to Zeus that Athena is being unfair. Thus, the wounding of two gods by Diomedes does not have the gravitas that Achilles' Aristea has. Book 5 is not a tragedy, but instead a comedy. Additionally, Diomedes' actions are not driven by the same extreme emotions that Achilles are. He operates completely within the accepted limits of mortals and pushes no boundaries. Achilles' Aristea, on the other hand, is a hyperbolic version of the mortal Aristea. He is depicted as both divine and mortal simultaneously, and his actions cause us to question the limits of acceptable behavior in warfare. The last thing I'd like to bring to attention in this book is the introduction of Sarpedon. For Homer to have great warriors, he must provide them with formidable opponents. Sarpedon will only appear twice more in the story before his death, but with only those few scenes he will make quite the impression, so keep an eye out for him. Well, that's book five. We have witnessed the first of several Aristea in the Iliad, comical wounding of two gods, and we met a new important character. If you're left a little battle-weary from all this martial excellence, fear not. The next book will contain slightly less carnage. 
Yes, the next episode will obviously cover book six and focus on Hector, the mortal man. We'll also step inside Troy for the first time in the story. For the next episode, though, I do recommend having a box of tissues handy because I personally find book six contains a few tear-jerking scenes. As always, if you're loving the podcast and want to hear even more, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or follow me on Substack to get all the episodes and anything else I find interesting on the Homeric epics, all for free. Until then, erostai akustoi philoi.